Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for street fins. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. This is episode 17, and today I have Alex Patel with me again. How have you been since our last episode? Hey Rohan, I've been doing well. Glad to hear it. We know in the past introductions to episodes, we've talked about how our lives have been and how college is going. But we wanted to take a break from that in this episode to talk about future plans we have for this podcast. One thing we are doing is building a community around this podcast and around the purpose of simplifying finance. We'd love to hear from you guys on any ideas you may have to help us do this for you. Would a Facebook group be a good way to do this? Would it be a Discord? Let us know by filling out the feedback form in the description. Additionally, we'll be sending out the transcripts for each episode on our newsletter also called Finance Simplified. If you want to have access to the transcripts for each episode to learn and share with your friends and family, we'll be sending those out starting next week. Our newsletter releases every Monday, and you can subscribe to it for not just the transcripts, but a simplified recap of what happened in financial markets the prior week. It's great for anyone who wants to understand the most recent developments in the markets and the world in the most simplified way. The link to subscribe is in the description. We also have some exciting news. We are on Clubhouse. We have a club on that invite-only app that you may have heard of from your friends or from the news. And that club is called Finance Simplified. No surprise there. Yeah, we would highly recommend that all of you listeners try to get on Clubhouse. Our club has around 2,000 members, and we'll be holding events with amazing speakers and prizes. Once you're on, just request to join, and we will approve your request. Just search up Finance on the app, and we'll be one of the first results that pops up. All right. So that was it for our announcements. So Alex, let's get into the topic of today's episode now, simplifying healthcare economics. Why is this such an important topic to understand? Well, Rohan, the central problem of any economic field is finding the best way to allocate resources to serve people. And when we talk about health resources, such as those in healthcare, finding ways to allocate those resources can be questions of life and death. Right. Healthcare economics is the field that aims to allocate these health resources to improve and better the health of everyone in society. It's the field that deals with a lot of questions surrounding topics like health insurance, drug prices, treatment costs, waste spending, and more. It takes a look at how many moving parts like the government, health insurers, biotech and pharma companies, doctors and medical workers, and the patients themselves all interact and behave with each other. It truly is a fascinating and important field, and if you can understand it, then you can understand how our healthcare system works and analyze its strengths and weaknesses. Right. And like we did with our last topic, we'll be making this topic a two-part conversation. So this episode is part one, and we'll be releasing part two in two weeks from when this drops. Before we continue, I want to give a shout out to Julius Yordanoff for correctly guessing this topic's guest. Julius is from Pittsburgh and studied economics at the University of Pittsburgh. So Julius, awesome job on figuring out who it was and sending us your guest so quickly. We'll be teasing the next guest at the end of part two. Additionally, we just want to remind you that if you are learning from our episodes and want to keep supporting what we're doing, we'd be eternally grateful if you gave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Additionally, we'd love to know what feedback you have for us. So fill out the feedback form in the description to let us know how we're doing and what you would like to see from us going forward. This part one episode will go into the basics of healthcare economics, the different entities in the healthcare system and the roles they play, the most important laws and regulations in healthcare, and much more. Our guest is a renowned professor of healthcare economics and policy and has done extensive research on the topic. So let's just get to simplifying. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified, the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. Healthcare economics, 
also known as health economics, is a popular and controversial field, as well as a frequent focus in the news. Healthcare economics. Health economics. The crazy world of healthcare economics. Our guest today is Dana Goldman, and he's been studying and teaching healthcare economics for quite some time now as a professor at USC. He's done extensive research on health economics, studying things like health insurance, regulation, innovation, drug pricing, and much more. His background and career are both so impressive that I think I'll just let him introduce himself. My name is Dana Goldman. I'm the interim dean at USC's Price School for Public Policy, and I also direct the Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics. You mentioned that you're part of the public policy school at USC Price. I'm curious to know, I mean, we're both college freshmen right now. So how did you, when you were younger, get into this field and what got you interested in economics and also the healthcare side of economics? It's a somewhat long and tortured history, but one thing I realized when I was studying in college is that the issue of resource allocation is fundamental to every public policy and welfare decision that we make in this country and around the world. Access to resources, how we use them, how to do it more efficiently, how can we make progress as a society. And I started to study several issues around that. Philosophy is relevant to that. But what happened is I really was compelled by the way my economic studies talked to me about how to do this in a more efficient manner and how to think about better outcomes for people as a society. So as I was approaching the end of college, I was facing a decision. Did I want to go work for, say, a consulting firm or an investment bank? Or did I want to go? And when I was out there talking to people, I realized the people who most interested me on the job market all already had their PhDs. And they had their PhDs in economics, in my case. And so I said, you know what? I'd like to go to graduate school because I want to be doing the things that they were doing. And so I decided to go into economics generally. And then I can tell you the story if you like, but how I got interested in health economics was once I arrived in graduate school at at Stanford, actually, which I know Alex attends as well. Thanks so much for a little bit on your background. And actually, I'd like to unpack a deeper understanding of healthcare economics. So can you kind of explain what maybe the central problem of healthcare economics is and maybe who's the supplier, who's the producer, and who's the consumer? Sure. And actually, as I said, economics is about how we allocate resources to meet objectives. And what makes health economics unique, I think, are some real failures of the market in very substantial ways. So for example, when I want to buy a smartphone, I can go to the store and I see the prices and I know how much utility or pleasure or value I'm going to derive from this good. And I figure out if it's worth it based on the price. And that's fundamental to the demand side of the market. And on the supply side, there are people, companies building phones and competing. Think about the healthcare market now. When I go to the doctor, I have no idea if this drug is going to give me utility or not, or this treatment. Is it really going to make me feel better? I don't know. I have to trust a third party, the physician, 
to tell me what is going to make my life better. So I've already lost some of the information about knowing what it is because I'm not an expert in this field. So this agency problem, which is common and endemic in several areas, is a problem that is endemic in healthcare. That is, we don't know what it is that gives us utility and we're relying on a third party. And then the second part of it is that often we're faced with making difficult decisions at the times when we're most vulnerable because we are sick, okay? And so when you're sick is probably the time you least want to price shop or do research or figure something out. And often you're buying something you've never bought before because it's an acute or new illness. And so all of these things mean that the demand side of the market doesn't work so well. And on the supply side, what we know is that this is a very highly regulated market. People are highly specialized and trained. In most markets, the fact that Apple or Samsung wants to make a profit is not viewed with any particular skepticism. We know that the suppliers do that. But for some reason, when we go into healthcare, if we think they're trying to make a profit, we're very skeptical as consumers. We don't want our doctors trying to make a profit. So the entire supply side of the market also operates differently. So it's highly regulated. We're skeptical of their motives. And it's also something that we can get into, but it's a highly concentrated market at this point. So for all these reasons, healthcare is a unique good with different issues. And that's why we have people who specialize in that area in the economics profession. Yeah, that's a fantastic overview. And and really, you're sort of differentiating between healthcare markets and sort of the traditional markets we think of as being guided by the rational consumer and the invisible hand. And I'd like to know more about what are some of the externalities that can be created in healthcare markets just due to this differentiation? Sure. I mean, probably the most salient example right now is vaccination, right? So for example, you know, whether I choose to get a vaccine or not, let's say I'm a college-age student, and actually the mortality risks from something like COVID are quite low. And so why would I want to take a risky vaccine? Well, it turns out young people interact with old people. And for old people like me, especially one with type 1 diabetes like I have, COVID could be quite risky. And so I have a strong interest in seeing you get vaccinated. So there's an obvious externality with infectious disease. But there are so many other externalities as well. For example, if you smoke, for example, or if you live an unhealthy lifestyle, maybe through diet or lack of exercise, it has consequences for medical spending down the line. And that spending has consequences for my taxes because 50% of healthcare in the United States is paid through public dollars. And so your behavior has a very direct effect on the taxes that other people are engaged in. And so these are all very challenging questions. But the externalities are another reason that healthcare economics is a unique area of study. Definitely. Now, I'd like to 
explore a little bit globally. So comparing sort of the U.S. healthcare system with those of other countries internationally, why is healthcare spending so high in the U.S. relative to other countries? Right. Great question. And let me say something about international comparisons. They are tortured at best, and sometimes they can lead to false conclusions. But in this case, it is a very apt question, and it looks like it's prices, not volume. So most spending is price times quantity, or you know that's how we think of expenditures. And you could ask, are we doing more in the United States, or does it cost more? And it looks like a lot of it is generated by higher P than higher Q. The problem with these international comparisons is that often they don't look at spending, but they look at outcomes. So you'll hear a lot that say, you know, we spend a lot in the United States, but we don't live as long. But we know how long you live has a lot to do with, like I said, whether you smoke, diet, exercise, stress, a lot of things that have nothing to do with healthcare, genetic composition, and the like. A better comparison would be to say, once you're sick and you enter the healthcare system, which system does a better job in taking care of us? And when you start looking at that, for example, if you look at cancer survival, even after you account for biases and how we diagnose, it looks like people survive longer with cancer in the United States than they do in the European Union, for example. And so if you ask, is it worth it that we spend more on cancer? The answer is a resounding yes. So you have to be very careful that when you do these international comparisons, that you're doing them in a way that doesn't indict other aspects of our public health infrastructure rather than our healthcare system. Yeah. And we just went over why healthcare economics is kind of different from the other kind of economics that we've studied with the traditional rational consumer and these kinds of things. The other part of that is when we think of a regular market, you have your consumer and your producer. And in the case of the healthcare markets, you have the producers who are the drug companies or the supply side, which is the, you know, the doctors and the healthcare workers. And then you have the consumers, which are patients. But somewhere along those lines, healthcare insurance gets introduced. And when I'm talking about healthcare, there's obviously different entities. And healthcare insurance is definitely one of the bigger ones. So could you kind of talk about the role of healthcare insurance? And I guess we can start with a base theory question. What does it do in terms of risk? So there are two things that health insurance does. And most people understand the first, which is it insures against the financial risk of getting sick, which is substantial. But it's actually not the big risk. The big risk is that suddenly your mortality has changed or that you can't work and be productive. And we don't really insure. So we're not insuring all the health risk, ironically. We're actually insuring the financial risk associated with the spending. The second thing health insurance does, and I think this is not as widely appreciated, it literally is a transfer mechanism from the healthy to the sick. And if you think about it, it gets back to this philosophy question, that I was talking about in a world where we think we're all behind this Rawlsian veil of ignorance, let's say, we don't know who we're going to be. Would we want to be in a world that transfers money from people who are healthy to people who are sick? We'd all say yes, because that seems like the fair thing to do. And so actually health insurance helps do that. 
And so it actually has a progressive element to it that's not widely appreciated. But you also mentioned and hinted at a bigger issue, and let me know if you want to discuss it, which is health insurance also distorts the decisions that we make when we decide to seek care. And that distortion is very large. It's been well-documented in studies like the RAND health insurance experiment, and it often does so in ways that create waste for society. Right. And when we think about healthcare insurance, and you were talking about the transfer from the healthy to the sick, right? And I guess one concept that when we study these healthcare markets, two concepts that come up are adverse selection and moral hazard. And I think what you're talking about with the transfer from the healthy to the sick, it can actually give rise to adverse selection in the sense that if you're overpaying for insurance that you don't necessarily think represents your personal level of safety and risk, that you might not want to pay for that because you're paying over that. But that insurance then goes and pays for someone who actually falls into some trouble and has to come and, and use that insurance, correct? You are absolutely correct. And so the way to think about it in a policy context is the Affordable Care Act. And what adverse selection says is that if I think I'm healthy, I don't want to pay the average premium because healthcare is expensive and I'm not going to use it and I'll stay out of the market. And so a big issue with health reform was how do you get healthy people back into the marketplace? And one way you can do that is you can mandate that everyone be insured. And that we had an individual mandate that created a lot of political controversy. But another way you can do it is by subsidizing people's insurance. And actually, it was not the mandate, despite all the attention it's received, both legally and politically, it was actually the generous subsidies to individuals that was more of a carrot than a stick to bring those healthy uninsured into the marketplace. Because if you don't have them, then the market can't function and it'll enter into what we sometimes colloquially call a death spot. So the adverse selection part is really about making sure you have a healthy risk pool. And I mean that healthy with quotation marks. Just you have that the right combination of healthy and sick people in that risk pool so that we can allow those subsidies to occur. The moral hazard part really gets at, it's an idea that says if you lower the cost of some behavior, then people are going to engage more of it. And really, it came up in the context of adverse behavior like smoking. You know, it's actually it, originally in insurance, it was about fire insurance. For example, you didn't want to fully insure ships because you didn't want people using lamps that might light the ships on fire and not taking care. And so the insurance companies would impose some co-insurance on the ship owners so that they would make sure that the people would not engage in risky behavior on board their vessels. And in the context of healthcare, the way that manifested is insurance is here, it lowers the price. And so if you were paying $2,000 to get an MRI of your knee, you might think twice than if you're paying $20. And so if I twist my knee and it's $2,000, I might wait a month before I go see the radiologist. 
But if I pay $20, I might go to the radiologist the next day. And you can see how people get better often and so how moral hazard might generate an increase in spending. And that's really all about the elasticity of demand for healthcare services, whether that's a big problem or not. Yeah, it just goes to show when you transfer the risk to the insurance providers, at least the financial risk that would in turn cause this feeling that you could actually take more risk because it's actually cheaper to bear the consequences of it, correct? Yeah, no, that's right. And you know, you could think that's in a static sense, you know, just looking in the cross section. In a dynamic sense, it gets even more complicated because take, for example, treatment of hepatitis C, which was a very expensive but very novel treatment. A lot of people with hep C, it takes 10 or 20 years for the liver problems to manifest. And so if you're an insurer and you're looking at paying twenty-five dollars to $50,000 for treatment, you might say, this person is on a one-year contract. They're healthy now. Why would I ever cover hep C for them? This is going to be Medicare's problem when they need a new liver. and that sort of decision-making is very different in a national health insurance system where the person is with the insurer forever. And they might say, look, we want to get rid of hep C so we don't ever have to pay for any liver transplants. So you could see how policy is tied up with moral hazard, which is tied up with these dynamics over time. Yeah. And you know, the next topic I wanted to talk about is the role of another entity, and that is the entity of pharmaceutical and biotech companies. And my first question about this, and this brings me to the, the constant talk about when a vaccine for COVID would be expected. I mean, we're recording this on the day that the Pfizer shipments, they shipped out, and the first people in the U.S. are supposedly going to be vaccinated quite soon. But when I was listening to all these people talk about, all right, we're going to expect the vaccine to come in the summer, or we're going to expect it to come in the fall or the winter. I mean, it's such an uncertainty. And I'm just curious how, maybe not just for this COVID vaccine, but for any kind of drug, how does healthcare economics account for that uncertainty and massive cost that's involved with the production of new drugs, that research cost? Sure. You know, it's interesting because we talked about radiology. We talked about going to the doctor. These are very labor-intensive activities that involve personnel who are highly skilled and it's expensive every time you do it. It turns out that drugs are a very different type of production model. In some sense, they have more in common with an, an iOS operating system where you have a lot of people doing a ton of R&D, but once you come up with it, it's very cheap to produce pills, pennies in some cases, and you can spit out a lot. So it's high fixed costs very low marginal cost, whereas going to the doctor is low fixed costs and high marginal costs. So drugs actually have more in common, I would argue, with things like operating systems and software and these other things than they do with traditional healthcare services. So then you get to the question, well, with software, how do we usually pay for software? Well, it turns out we want to license that innovation, and we often pay a fee, and then we can use as much as we want. So you don't have to pay every time you use Zoom or turn on your computer. 
you pay a license fee and you use exactly the right amount. And that's what drugs should be doing. And that's what my research is focused on. In some ways, we need to reward the innovator for coming up with the product, but then we want to use as much as we want. So we don't want these vaccines to be very high cost, even though they've generated a lot of value. We'd love to give, and essentially we are, we'd love to give Pfizer and Moderna and all these other AstraZeneca, these companies a reward for innovating and then make sure it's broadly accessible as cheaply as possible. In this case, probably zero. In fact, socially, it probably makes sense to pay people to get the vaccine for the reasons Alex asked me about earlier, which is you know the externality of affecting others. So I didn't truly answer your question about uncertainty, but just say the production of pharmaceuticals and R&D and healthcare generally has a lot more in common with other fields than you would realize. It is highly risky to do this, and we need to reward innovators. And in fact, that's why in the U.S. Constitution, it says the right to a patent, because a patent gives the inventor the right to make money off their invention. And so that's enshrined in our Constitution, and it's an important principle to keep in mind. Yeah, and I think you actually did answer it pretty well because, you know, the process by which I really like that analogy of like, you know, Apple developing new iOS software to, you know, Pfizer or Moderna developing a new drug. Now, on the topic of drugs and the pricing of drugs, what kinds of laws and regulations surround the pricing of drugs specifically? So it's very complicated and we could do a whole show on how we do these things. And internationally, most of the prices are set by governments. So you actually often have a monopolist, which means one person who can produce something, probably defended by these patents I was talking about, against a monopsonist, which is a single buyer, which is often a government. In the US, it's complicated because we have insurers who are negotiating So it's not individuals, but it's large insurers, sometimes representing tens of millions of lives who are negotiating prices with these monopolists. And there is a lot of government regulation in between. And the result of this is that there's really this tension. And we know prices are higher in the United States than they are elsewhere. And some people have argued that we should just In fact, the Trump administration has said this, and Democrats have said it too, that we should have government negotiation of prices, or we should reference prices to what other countries are paying. All of that misses who wants to pay for the innovation. And the reason it misses it, by the way, comes back to a very important principle that gets lost in healthcare, which we haven't talked about yet. And that's about the prices. So usually when we think about prices, they're the price per unit and each unit of a good gives us utility. So the price of a phone, the price of this. In healthcare, we do the price per pill, but it's not actually the price we care about. What we care about are the health units it delivers. That's how you measure. So I don't wanna know price per pill. I wanna know price per cure or price per life year 
or price per some metric that relates to what gives me the utility. And so in some cases, because the prices are so screwed up that they don't measure price per the unit we care about, it distorts the entire market again, as we've been discussing. Hey everyone, that was the end of part one of our two-part interview with Dana Goldman on simplifying healthcare economics. We'll be releasing part two of our interview in about two weeks from when this releases. But part one of the conversation was absolutely incredible. Alex, what were some of the main takeaways from this first part? I think one takeaway is that we can't analyze healthcare markets through the same lens and ideas with which we analyze the stock market or other markets. There aren't just normal consumers and producers here who each have power. In the case of healthcare economics, we can't think of just consumers and producers at the broadest level. We have to be specific and define who the consumers are and who the producers are. Consumers are those seeking out healthcare, in other words, patients, and producers are the ones providing those healthcare services. And they can be doctors, health insurers, drug and treatment providers, to name a few. We also have to think about how exactly the demand accesses the supply. In other words, how the patient accesses the healthcare services he or she needs. Is it through insurance or from out-of-pocket costs? Does he or she need intensive drug treatment or just a doctor's visit? How does innovation factor in? Our health needs are so wide-ranging and complicated, so it makes sense why healthcare economics is such a large field with so many moving parts. Add in the externalities, like vaccinations and their effect on pricing and spending, as well as the role the government plays with its policies and regulations, and you can see how healthcare economics becomes more important as well as differentiated from the traditional economic model. Exactly. And when we dig into just the role of healthcare insurance, we can already see why so many problems arise with the ideas of adverse selection and moral hazard. With adverse selection, healthy people won't want to pay for insurance. This can lead to less insurance premiums paid to the insurer, which means the insurer will have less money to pay out to the sick people it insures. If more sick people face increasing health costs, then their insurance company may eventually run out of money to insure them with, meaning the sick won't get the health care they need. There was a whole act, the Affordable Care Act, that was passed to try and solve adverse selection. And in addition to adverse selection, there is also the issue of moral hazard, which makes it more likely that those with insurance will engage in riskier behavior, potentially leading to some bad health consequences. Yeah, and another thing I found quite interesting was how healthcare economics tries to incentivize innovation. The analogy of drug development and innovation being more like software rather than traditional healthcare was very helpful, and it totally makes sense. Agreed. Well, Alex, that wraps up our part one conversation and takeaways. What can we expect from part two? We'll be talking more about the specifics of things like drug pricing, monopolistic and monopsonistic behaviors, universal healthcare, COVID and its impact on healthcare, the COVID vaccine, and much more. Part two will be dropping on March 15th, which is two weeks from now. We'll talk to you all then. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to Dr. Dana Goldman for his insights today. I hope you understand healthcare economics in a more simplified way. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too.
We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.